Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with 371 trifix, and ENTP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Welcome to The Blind Spot. We are back again with Sarah McMahill, who we recently had an interview with, and she and I have been discussing these ideas of the instinctual drives in relationship to the polyamory monogamy spectrum, and we got into a really interesting conversation about how all of these are showing up for us in our lives in a prior episode, and Sarah recently had a diamond retreat. And she had some really cool experiences and wanted to come back and share some of the discoveries that she had. So welcome back, Sarah. And you're a part of the Diamond Group in that meets at the Christine Center in Wisconsin. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that's the base, though. Currently, everything is being hybridized. So mm-hmm. it's a combination of uh, the Zoom as well as in person. So that's the current setup. And how long have you been in your diamond group? I just started it last year, probably about started in September. Yeah. I joined one last March. So you and I are both early on the diamond path. And I'm a bit curious about whether all diamond groups are the same, like whether they start the same. And I heard that there is a seven-year path where they take us through some curriculum associated with the diamond approach. Is that what your group is doing as well? That's my assumption. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious, did you guys start with red essence? I don't think so, actually. Okay. And have you done green essence compassion yet? So what for uh, our last session was about the sap of the soul. So we've kind of been talking about the nature of the soul. Interesting. Okay. So I am now discovering that diamond groups are different. Different diamond groups are probably approaching the teachings in different orders and probably different flavors based upon who the diamond teacher is. So we at least know that the group in Boulder that's being run by Andreas Muskas and the group in Wisconsin that's a hybrid program right now, but meets at the Christine Center is taking a slightly different approach. So now I'm even more curious because I don't know anything about the, did you call it the staff of the soul? Yeah, that was just the last discussion that we had that was over this past weekend was Mm. about sap and about the different parts of the soul. Now, did you say staff or sap? Sap, as in the sap from a tree. Got it. Okay, so the sap of the soul. That's really interesting. I love that. Would you tell us a little more? And and now that I'm really thinking about that, I, I think it's an interesting thing to put together is the sap of the tree and the sap of us as human beings. When I think of sap, I think of so many different potential fluids though. There's like blood, there's, you know, a lot of different fluids. What are you thinking of as human sap? Sexual fluids or? Everything. Everything. It's everything. Okay. So like Like, our lymphatics, like all of it. Yes. All of it. Uh, but there's all these structures that we have in place. Okay. So my understanding of it is that 
our structures are so rigid and we want to bring some fluidity into those mm. structures within ourselves. Mm, I love that. Yeah, you're making me think of the four elements and how there's the earth element, but we also have the water element. And, you know, the earth element gives us stability and the water element gives us flow. So it sounds like you're talking a little bit about integrating those two. And we know that we have the four elements inside of the body. You know, the earth element is our tissue and solid form. And the water element manifests as all of the fluids that we have. And the air element is the breath. And the fire element is our sense of heat or warmth. And we could also make it a little more sexual organs. Yeah, definitely sexual instinctual energy, as well as the soul and the spirit, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. And it's just so fascinating to see all of these different patterns in there. But it was kind of what we were talking about, the staff of the soul and some of the instincts. It's like, and so we kind of touched base on uh, the, the self-preservation, the social and the sexual. And I don't know why in my mind I had it set that the sexual was kind of more of the the body, mm-hmm. necessarily the, the heart connection, but more of the body. Mm-hmm. And I got it mixed up. It was the, the social that I thought was a little bit more connected with the body and getting out that way. And the sexual I thought was more a little bit heart. But it just kind of occurred to me during this retreat. It's like, wait a second, I got that completely backwards. Okay. So tell me how you're understanding it now. So the social is that emotional contact. Mm-hmm. And it's the drive for that connection for the community and the family. So it's kind of like the connecting of two different heartbeats. Yeah. And what we have lost the ability to do is to have our synchronous heartbeat. And so right now, my heartbeat isn't as in the same time with yours. Mm. So the goal, I believe, is to have that connection so we can be in synchronous with each other and really connect that way. Were you able to play with this at your retreat at all? Was it, This was an online retreat. Did you yeah. do any experiential exercises that allowed you to touch in what that might be like? Not necessarily in the specific instinct exercise, but we there was one just more about our animal soul in general and the animal soul having the instincts as part of that. Okay. So what did they talk about in this animal soul? And it was just more experiencing what the animal soul feels like. Mm-hmm. What does your animal soul feel like? When I did that exercise on my own, it actually felt like a monkey at the time. Mm. And what sensations did you experience that made your mind compare it to a monkey? Because in my mind, this monkey is holding a banana and it is throwing it at my inner critic. Mm. It's throwing bananas at more than just that inner critic. It's throwing it at all kinds of structures that I have within myself. Okay. I kind of had a sense that my soul child and my inner critic, or not my inner critic, my uh, animal soul were in cahoots with each other. Interesting. So when you think of your soul child, describe your soul child. My soul child. And just to use Enneagram terminology, 
When I describe my soul child of three, that's actually point six. Inside of every three lies an angsty little six that is so worried and spinning on a little hamster wheel, doing, 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 and trying to be seen in a certain way and have a certain level of success because there's that anxious little six that's fueling the motor inside. And when I think of the soul child of point nine, for example, inside of every point nine is a narcissistic little three that would love to be noticed and recognized and be in the limelight and be getting the attention. And so when I'm thinking of soul child, I'm thinking of it being used in that way, which I think Sandra Maitre originally wrote about in her works. Uh But I also have heard the soul child in the diamond approach described as that naive part of ourself, that beautiful, untarnished, id-like, but Mm -hmm. joyful and harmless, sort of that eternal child that then the inner critic structures come on top of and gets wounded somewhere along the way so that we can't show up in that pure, innocent, naive, joyful, childlike way. So I'm curious, when you're talking about your soul child, are you talking about it in terms of the Aenea language that I first started with or in terms of that pure part of yourself that has very base animalistic longings, like it might want to eat ice cream for dinner, but also has this beautiful purity and youthfulness and and curiosity and playfulness Mm -hmm. and all of that wonderful stuff and I think for my soul child my my soul child just wants to is connected with my inner rebel sometimes and I just want to go off and play all day or read all day and just shirk all of my responsibilities Mm, yeah uh, one thing I used to do as a very little girl, uh, both of my parents are ministers, they're retired now, but since they were always at the front of the church leading service, I would go to every member of the congregation and I would sit with them for their service and I would just pick one of them and I would just make my rounds, mm. all of the different congregants. And that's kind of what feel like my soul child is. I wanted to have connection with all of the people in the congregation. Was this more of a being with the person or more of a talking engagement, chatting experience with the people when you would move around the congregation? Kind of both. Both. Yeah. So you took the time to get to know that person and you could also just sit next to them during the service and sort of commune energetically next to each other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that I would say is social instinct. Yes, and that's, I think, what kind of ties in with some of the polyamory that I was just thinking about is that I think the people who are polyamorous, I think, have a really higher sense of their social instinct. I agree with you. I completely agree with you. I think that polyamory in its highest form, is a high expression of the social instinct. Yes. Mm. And that was what really got me thinking about that. And it's like, okay, I have to call you again. (laughs) Well, and let's just go ahead and review some of what we talked about in the other episode, because that's what I think is so cool about this journey is that we are discovering 
from our own experience and from so many different teachers, the actual flavor of these. And when somebody says something that clicks it all together, for me, there's this big like, yes, that happens inside of my body. And it sounds like you experienced that too. So we were like, the metaphor that comes up for me is that our first conversation was basically going out and plowing the field and throwing Mm -hmm. around a few seeds. And both you and I, I think it's been about six weeks since we had that conversation, have been just germinating and then things are sprouting up. And in that time, I actually have had a conversation with Catherine Fav, which is going to drop pretty quickly. And I actually ran it by her because she identifies as being sexual instinctual dominant. And I was interested in her perspective on monogamy and polyamory. And I've also talked to some other sexual dominant people. And it does seem like sexual dominant people have a very, very strong sense of possessing the partner or whoever it is. And so that ability to kind of open up and share, there's less access to that. And I just want to make sure that I'm not framing this as good or bad, because I think that if we are talking about having a stack, if we're talking about instinctual wiring, we're going to have certain instinctual needs that feel more important based on what's your dominant, what's your middle, and what's your blind spot. And I actually recently got to have a conversation with Russ about this. And I think that Russ Hudson was even saying to our green room that it's really a lot about the relationship that we're having to each instinct. And this is partially why Russ is also dividing the instincts into zones because there's a lot of complexity to these instincts. And on one hand, there's like a flavor or an essence or an energy that goes along with that instinct. And if we take that instinct and we try to separate it from the other two, which we can't really do in our real life experience because all three instincts are operating in us all the time, can we try to dissect the felt sense of that instinctual energy and then start to develop what components are actually going into that. So I think that that's a little bit what we're doing here. And as this conversation has evolved, I'm feeling more and more certain that if you are sexual dominant, polyamory is probably going to give you a big yuck feeling inside of your body. You want to meet someone where there is that true sense of fusion, where you're coming together as two souls And any other soul would contaminate that union. There's like that basic belief. Whereas if you're coming together in a more social instinctual field, you can pull other people into it. And it might actually even be more wonderful as opposed to having it take something away. I don't know. When you hear me kind of outline and frame it in that way? Is there anything there that isn't lining up for you? Or is that how you're coming to think about it as well? Yeah, that's how I'm coming to think about it as well. And so I'm self-pres dominant and intellectually, I can get it. And I know that the key thing to, to any relationship is that communication is just might be easier for some people rather than others. But yeah, that's very similar to what I'm thinking. 
Well, and let's just go ahead and talk about what a sexual connection from the self-preservation perspective is more about. I think that with self-preservation, it's really about my connection with my body. Social is when I include your body in the field um, yeah. or more multiple bodies in my field. And sexual is when there's one other body in my field and it has a more intense flavor to it. But you can have just one other person in your field and it can have both sexual and social flavor to it, depending upon the heat that's there. This is one of these elements of the fire element that really does distinguish sexual instinctual energy, which is a fire and water element from social energy, which is an air element. It has a lighter, more spacious quality. Yeah. And it's all housed within the earth element of the body. Yep. And so we actually have sexual organs. We actually come together in some mechanical way with whoever that partner is. And we actually experience sensations that sometimes can be inner generated and often are externally generated. So this is why you can have a sexual experience. And I would say masturbation for the most part is a self-preservation sexual experience. It doesn't really have social or sexual instinctual energy elements because there isn't another human there with you in that moment. So I think that that's a good example. And I think we've all had sexual experiences where we didn't really feel seen or appreciated as a person. There was more objectification going on where you're just kind of using my body because it's better than your toys or something like that. Mm -hmm. The one exception to that be is if let's say your partner is wanting to watch you masturbate. Oh, sure. Now you're playing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a field now again where you're not even touching, but there's something happening with another person. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you yeah. for that nuance. I feel like that's really important because we all know that there's a phenomenon of phone sex or Skype sex or whatnot, where you don't actually touch each other, but you're turning each other on. And so there's clearly an energetic exchange happening, mm -hmm. even though you're not touching the other person's body. Yes. Yes. And I think that that's really important to highlight because when we start to talk about infidelity, I think that's a really interesting topic. Like what counts as cheating is very different from individual to individual people have different reactivity around what that might mean. So if you found out that your partner was having an emotional affair versus a physical affair, do those carry equal charge for you? Or is there one that feels more important than the other? Have you ever done that thought experiment? Or are you just like, they wouldn't have to have an affair because we could talk about it and be open or <laughs> what, what comes up for you when I just paint these scenarios? Well, I'm I'm blessed with a wife who I feel comfortable talking about stuff like this too. So for me, I don't think that's any issue because we do have a fairly open communication about that. But as you were saying, it's really by by individual and what one person's emotional affair is could be more destructive than something else. Yeah, there are, we can definitely construct scenarios in which the emotional affair is a bigger deal or the physical affair is a bigger deal. And for some people, all of that is a big deal. So I think that that's just a way to explore 
what do these issues bring up for you is by doing these different thought experiments. Yeah. And more than just thought experiments, but if you can do this thought experiment with your partner. Oh, absolutely. Because that's how you get to know your partner. And this is where true intimacy actually comes from, is when we can notice where we're different. Like this is where I think that conflict actually breeds intimacy. As a three who's had a lot of relationships with a nine, these have been the points of destruction in our relationship Mm. is when either one of us just goes along for the sake of ease without taking the time to do the work around unpacking what feelings might be underneath the behaviors that we're noticing and really getting vulnerable and unpacking those. I mean, for me, that's been really important to learn. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, Sarah, do you know your Myers-Briggs type? INFJ. Okay. So you are an INFJ. Yes. And what's interesting is I took the test a few different times and the other score that I got um, was an ENFP, uh, so which is really interesting because because I'm very in the middle between the I and the E and the J and the P, but I'm very strong on the on the N and the F. Okay, so is it okay if I sort of unpack that a little bit for you and tell you what that means in terms of your cognitive structures and your cognitive preferences? Sure. Yeah. You know, if we're gonna say, and and I just want to name that. Myers-Briggs typing is just like Enneagram typing. People aren't always right based off of the test. This is why working with somebody who's trained in typology can help you find your way to your best fit type. So if we're going to talk about the INFJ, I've been working with another theory because my co-pilot is introverted thinking. And I just want to take a moment to describe the difference for listeners who don't know Myers-Briggs and are more Enneagram people about what the difference between introverted feeling, which we sometimes call authenticity, and introverted thinking, which we sometimes call accuracy is. Because we all have these processes, but we only have one of them in our consciousness and the other one is in the unconscious. So I'll talk a little bit about what it's like for me. So as an introverted thinker, I love maps. I like taking huge amounts of data, which is why the Enneagram isn't enough for me. I layer it into the instinctual drives and into Myers-Briggs, and I really can pull in just about any other typology and kind of find its spot amongst these three, but these are the three that I'm going to primarily use in my typing interviews. And the reason is because I really believe that the instinctual drives are telling us what's happening in the body, in that you know belly center. These are the things that are firing that we have no conscious control over. And if we believe that we have a stack, it means that we're going to be prioritizing certain instinctual needs over other instinctual needs. And if we believe in the concept of a blind spot, that may mean that there is important instinctual information that we may not be dialed into. So this is why it's very important for me to say, I think that in polyamory communities, there can be a little bit of snobbery as in, we are using a higher form of the social instinct than you are. And I think it's important to also remember that people who are practicing monogamy could be using a higher form of the sexual instinctual energy than the Mm -hmm. polyamorous community. So I just get really nervous 
whenever we're entering any kind of a conversation that paints one as being better than another, I think they're different and I think they give us different gifts. Now, the thing that I'm super curious about is that when we have these different instinctual drives leading, what are the pairings that really bring beautiful gifts into that couple field? And what are the pairings that are different? So it's complementary, but you're also going to have certain struggles. Have you looked at that in your own relationship at all? How your instinctual stack either supports you or brings struggles for you? Well, I'm glad you brought up the zones that Russ was talking about earlier, uh, because I've definitely been noting the zones more so with my my wife, uh, just because I know that uh, we're, we're both self-prez. And more than self-prez is like, uh, we believe that she's the same type as I am as a type six. And I am more focused on some of my health and the safety, and she is more focused on some of the financial aspects and some other security things. But me, I am all about the health. So that sounds really complimentary. It sounds like within the self-preservation instinctual zone, which is really important to both of you, you really bring different gifts into your relationship. Is that what I'm hearing? It is both a gift and a challenge. Yeah. Because sometimes it doesn't exactly mesh. Okay. Now, what we, I'm curious about is as a about that. Oh, sure. Like if you're prioritizing yeah. health and she doesn't care about health that much and she's prioritizing household operations and you don't care about household operations as much, I'm just imagining that there could be some natural tension that might exist there. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So how about as a couple, do you feel like there's any social blindness or sexual blindness between the two of you as a couple? Like the way you interface with the world since you're both self-preservation dominant? Or do you navigate both realms just great, as far as you can tell? Well, after doing some of this work with the Enneagram and now uh, doing some stuff with the Diamond Approach, I've gotten to know some of my tendencies a little bit better and have found that I like to be out there a little bit more and connecting with other people and she she doesn't want to do that. She just wants to have just us and basic family. And so it I sounds like your social is a little more online than hers. So maybe she's social blind and you're self-pres social. Does that resonate? Yes. Okay. Yeah. You probably bring some necessary social lubricant into your lives since she doesn't really want to engage with other people socially as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where yeah. do you see her infusing something around sexual instinctual energy? Is there anything that you think she brings in that you are more blind to? That I haven't pondered as much. So I'll have to to think on that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And when you guys have these conversations about your relational structure and your opinions around polyamory or a more open structure... Does she have opinions that are different from yours, or do you guys have the same belief system around all of this? I kind of like the way that she originally put it when we were originally talking about our relationship. Is like, right now, we are de facto monogamous. Mm-hmm. So if the right person comes along, yes, we'll have a, co- a conversation about it. But until that happens, we'll just be happy together as we are. There you go. So I would say that's the sexual middle coming through. She doesn't really 
want to explore what might it be like to involve others, to have others. She's like, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, which makes me believe that there could be a little more tension around it for her than there is for you. Like I can tell just because you've reached out to me two times that you like these thought experiments, <laughs> as do I. Oh, yes. Definitely. Yeah, they're kind of fun to think about. So I'm curious because when I have some friends who are social dominant that I have these conversations with, and I think that both social dominant, I think you'll find both people that feel strongly that polyamory works for them and they really like this larger social container. And I think when you talk to a social dominant person who has been in a monogamous structure and that's all they've ever known, that there's also this very strong impulse to have that social bond and social contract be with that one person because there's more simplicity in a social contract that involves one other person, one set of children, one set of relatives, because obviously as you start to introduce more intimate partnerships, and now we even have this term kitchen table poly, where like everybody knows everybody and everybody is open and cool and it's like one big happy family, you can just imagine that as you add more personalities into the system, you have to have a higher willingness and competency around navigating extroverted feeling, which is harmony, which is how is the group doing, which is also the social instinctual energy. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that for people who are self-pres social, I think that we are naturally a little bit more autonomous mm -hmm. as opposed to people that are social dominant. Now, people who are self-pres and social blind, in my experience, get along without people just fine much of the time. Of course, there's still this longing for connection, but when self-pres is dominant and social is blind, they probably have their like one other special person, but they can really go into their own bodies and experience a lot of pleasure and satisfaction sort of being on their own. Whereas mm -hmm. when sexual is blind and social is in the middle, I think that there are so many other roles that we're wanting and needing because social is on the radar. And why do we have social groups? We have social groups because we're all specialized in some way. Like if you think about a company, which is a social group, if you had every single person in the company with the exact same skill set, that company is going to have a lot of problems. Like the HR person needs to be different than the person who's doing R&D in the lab. You know, if you're like a pharma company and all you have is you don't have somebody doing compliance and you don't have somebody doing sales and you don't have somebody doing R&D and you don't have somebody doing HR and you don't have somebody leading. I mean, you have to have all of these different specializations for that company to thrive. Mm -hmm. Now, similarly within a family system, I think we need to specialize as well, but because we're trying to work together in more intimate settings without a break, like sometimes people switch jobs. Now, sometimes people switch relationships, but if you believe in monogamy, then you're supposed to stick in this relationship. And if over time, as the system changes, you realize, oh, 
people had a set of skills that worked well when the family context was this, but now that the family context is that, we don't have as many specialists here that we need. And so we tend to bring those in maybe if we're lucky in the forms of grandma and grandpa or aunts and uncles and cousins and family systems. And some people actually build families within neighborhoods. So I think that the success of the one-to-one intimate connection often has to do with how many other supportive family members of different strengths and specializations are existing in the system and how do we navigate each other's differences? Can we see those as positive things that we can celebrate or do we see them as problems because they're not doing it the way I would or they're not paying attention to what I am? Mm-hmm. So when I think about why monogamy often doesn't work, I think that for people who have more needs and I'm totally going out on a limb saying this. I don't know if I believe this or not, but I would feel like if social is high up in the stack, that you have to figure out a way to meet those needs. And for some people, I think polyamory is a strategy that ends up working. I can see that. Okay. The the other thing that I can see with the social being high up is being overly involved in whatever community that they're in. Sure, if it's dominant and a little neurotic. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, I'm thinking of community choirs or their churches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you're saying over-involved, now I get curious, like how do we define over-involvement? When I hear the word over, it carries a little bit of a judgment with it as to saying something else is lacking because there's too much going here. So what came up for me is that if you're sexual blind and social dominant, your over-involvement might look like your partner, if they have sexual higher up in the stack, may feel a little neglected. Because why are you out there always at choir practice and always out in the community when I want us to have more alone and intimate time where it's just you and me and it's juicy and rich and that other person may not prioritize that the same way. Whereas if you're social dominant and self-pres blind, you may be giving a lot to your partner and a lot to your community and family but you're not paying attention to your own health, your own well-being, your own financial situation, your own home, like whatever it is that matters to your self-pres needs. Does that kind of line up? Yeah, somewhat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And is that kind of what you were referencing when you were saying overly involved or were you referencing what it's like when somebody's overly in your business because of their social instinct, like almost too energy? I want to differentiate two energy from social instinctual energy because we can have a high social instinct, but if we're a five, we're probably not going to be like super nebby in other people's business. But if we're a social two, it's that two energy, whether it's self-pres, social or sexual, that can kind of be a little invasive. And we could go around the wheel and obviously um, different types with different motivations can have that meddling component of two energy come out because we all have point two inside of us, varying degrees. But I was wondering if that's what you were talking about. When I'm thinking of over-involved, I was thinking about those people who refuse to step down from any type of position. Mm, Okay. So now they have their identity and their ego wrapped up in this 
even if they're not doing the best job. Is that what you're referencing? Yes. Okay. Sure. And so that may be for any Enneagram type, we're all doing something for a different reason. Like if I'm a one, it's nobody can do it as well as I can, is my Mm -hmm. thought. You know, if I'm a two, I might be worried about like my relationships falling apart if I don't have this position of power. If I'm a three, it's about my desire to look successful, like in this lead role. And we can just keep on going around the wheel as to why that person might not want to be there. And I think there are certain types that gravitate less to leadership positions than others. And those types probably would have less of a hard time stepping back from it as well, but maybe not. I mean, humans are complicated creatures and we could probably come up with a scenario that could trigger any type and any instinct to do just about anything. (laughs) That's why I love these conversations. Just There's just so much to talk about with this. This is mental masturbation. Let's just go. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so much fun. Yeah, I mean, you know, because bring it back to sex again, there's a certain sexual instinctual energy that can actually be generated through thought exploration. And that's one way that we sometimes connect with people in a juicy way. I actually have heard that there is such a thing as a mental orgasm. I have them all the time. (laughs) For all of my listeners, when I am interrupting you, it's because I just had a brain orgasm. I mean, I think that if you lead with extroverted intuition, they're happening all the time because we call this function exploration and you're just like ping, 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 ping. And when you find gold, the experience inside is like if you play a video game and you hit the jackpot. And the dopamine hit that you get is so exciting that you just like, it's really hard to pull back from not jumping right into that space. Yep. Yep. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Well, that's super fun. Yeah. And these are also very intuitive conversations. So if you're enjoying this podcast, my suspicion is that you're more likely to be leading with intuition as opposed to sensing. And intuition can be tangential and kind of lacks some structure because you're just sort of feeling your way there. I'm pretty low on sensing. The NS is something that I'm not that close on, although a lot of the sensing functions I've had to develop, but they're things that I develop that I enjoy a lot less. So this podcast is absolutely an intuitive playground because I'm just going wherever I want to go. And then sometimes I remember, oh, I didn't finish talking about what introverted feeling and introverted thinking is. I described my maps that I'm holding, but now I want to come back and I just want to talk about introverted feeling. That is what we call authenticity. And when you land on something, there is just a sense of rightness that comes through the body. It's just right. Like I feel it. As opposed to me, I'm like, well, it fits all these maps. Therefore, it's correct. It's a different way of going through the world. Do you see that? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Which is also why sometimes when you combine extroverted intuition and introverted thinking, there's a lot of words because I feel the the need to explain all of the maps I'm using and all the level of detail because I assume that my listener actually cares and will track it with me 
where only 10% of the population really does. So if you're ever feeling overwhelmed by where I'm taking you, it just means that, you know, you're probably not an ENTP, which is what Catherine <laughs> Fav actually is. So our conversations, I mean, every time we've talked, the listeners will hear what we've listened to, but we've logged about five hours of this with each other because we're both two ENTPs. So our processing style is the same. Whereas for somebody with introverted feeling, they may have a harder time explaining exactly how they came to that conclusion of rightness because it is much more of a felt sense than a calculation or a formula or a problem that you solved that now got you to the answer. And so it's harder to quote unquote, show your work. Does that make sense? Oh, yes, very much. Uh, you know, I've had a number of massage clients, actually, who say, I had no idea that that area needed that. And yeah. I've I've been told that I was a little creepy, primarily because, like, I'll, I'd be doing something as, like, that's exactly what I needed. Yeah. Well, and there's your intuition. So yeah. I believe that you are an INFJ instead of an ENFP based off of that statement, which I'm not supposed oh, yeah. to do. I would have to do a big whole profiler session, but I like to lead with extroverted intuition. So when something pings into my extroverted intuition, I am thinking that you are describing introverted intuition, which is, you know, as an INFJ, you're leading with introverted <laughs> intuition and your co-pilot is extroverted feeling, and your tertiary, this is where I'm showing that I have less competency than I enjoy. So if it's, it's another introverted process, and it is going to be either, it's the opposite of extroverted feeling, which is introverted thinking, there we go. And then the final one is extroverted sensing. Okay, I found my way there. This is me using the maps in my brain. When I think of intuition, which we sometimes call perspectives, this is this way to actually step into somebody else's experience and sort of through, it's more of pattern recognition than navigating by maps. Intuition is a very non-concrete function. And so if you're an INFJ, you're leading with introverted intuition, which is that creepy thing you can do with your massage clients. And your <laughs> secondary function is extroverted feeling, which is that ability to actually feel what they're feeling. And then your introverted thinking does have maps of, oh, when I see this pattern and I'm feeling this energy, do this and it works. Yeah. And you can have some pretty amazing outcomes. And because extroverted sensing, which is being in the body in that moment, is on your radar, you actually have a connection to the body in addition to being self-pressed dominant that is actually really powerful for you. I've had somebody say it's like having a conversation with their body. So I like so I'm having body conversations. Ooh, I love that. And I yep. think that that's so cool to hear about how you use massage therapy for healing by mm -hmm. pairing these two functions of introverted intuition, extroverted feeling, and extroverted sensation. These are this superpower 
that makes INFJs excellent therapists in a wide variety of ways. That's what people do really well. And the thing that INFJs, because they're constantly taking in energy from the world, it's like you have a little antenna sticking off of your head that's just pulling in the energy of the world. The nervous system of an INFJ can also sometimes get overwhelmed. So that feeling of overwhelm that sixes might describe, I also think nines describe it. I also think fours describe it. These are all common types that show up with INFJ. The thing that sixes and nines and fours all have in common is that their nervous systems can get overwhelmed pretty easily. Yeah. Yeah. I have definitely been through a lot of different experiences with that. Yeah. Being overwhelmed. Yeah. So it's learning how to come back into that direct experience of your own body. When people have extroverted feeling up high, a lot of times we're out in other people's bodies and we need to learn how to sort of come back and be in mine and listen to what this body needs as opposed to allowing so much of our energy to be out there taking care of the other bodies. Does that make sense? I think so, yeah. Yeah. So you often find people who have a lot of extroverted feeling in helping fields because we're feeling what other people are feeling almost through some kind of direct empathic connection. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Sarah. This was super fun. I have a funny feeling we'll be having more conversations in the future and I hope that you have a great week. Thank you. Yeah, you too. If you enjoyed this, You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice while Essence MD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation.